This is Transistor, a science series from PRX. This is Genevieve at PRX. We are excited to begin a mini-series from the Smithsonian. Their new podcast, Side Door, is about where science, art, history, and humanity unexpectedly overlap, just like their museums. And we're featuring some of their stories over the next few episodes. This Side Door episode features three stories of trickery and deception. We hear about how orchids try to find pollinators, fake armies in World War II, and a zombie invasion of the Chesapeake Bay. Enjoy. I'm Megan Dietrich, and this is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian. Today, we bring you three stories about trickery. Imposters who misrepresent themselves take over, all to get what they want. My co-host, Tony Cohn, is going to begin with an unexpected expert in sexual deception, the orchid. These wily plants are masters of disguise, coming in all kinds of unique, sometimes even weird forms. Uh, a friend of, uh, of Charles Darwin's sent him one of these plants. That's Tom Miranda, an orchid specialist. He's showing us around the greenhouses of the Smithsonian Gardens. Uh, When he took it out of the box, he famously uttered, Good heavens, what insect could suck it? Because of the long nectar tube with the nectar just down here at the bottom. Tom knows all about why orchids have these strange devices. There's almost 30,000 species of them. Some have big, beautiful flowers, and some actually don't look like flowers at all. But there's a good reason for that. It's because orchids have co-evolved to attract a single pollinator. So each species of orchid uses its own trick, through sense or color or look, to bring in a bug or bird. And Tom has seen plenty of different adaptations. The Smithsonian is home to some 9,000 orchids, but the best place to see them may actually be in his garage. That's where Tom keeps his own collection, which has as many as 2,000. I'm told by my neighbors that um, the police department comes by my house regularly to check and see what might be under those grow lights that they can see from the street. Um, What they don't realize is that the orchids themselves are quite a bit more addictive than marijuana. There's a huge variety of orchids on display at the Smithsonian, too, and that's not a surprise. Orchids are possibly the most diverse family in the plant kingdom. They can grow almost anywhere, and they employ a whole bunch of tactics to get attention. Let's look at the hammer orchid in Australia. Its flower is shaped to look exactly like this female wasp that spends its whole life on the ground. This wasp will crawl up to the top of a blade of grass when she's ready to mate. The male will come and he will clasp her from behind and they'll fly off together and mate in midair. Some orchids release a scent that mimics female insects. So these dopey male insects attempt to mate with the flower. And during the act, they pick up a piece of pollen that they then drop off at another sexy smelling plant. These orchids are actually also emitting the same pheromone that the female emits in order to attract the male there in the first place. And these wasps can smell um, these flowers over very, very great distances, but they've only been deceived. The flower itself is mounted on a hinge, and on the other side is a sticky pad with pollen sacs. They're mimicking that uh, female on the tip of the blade of grass, but when the male comes, 
to fly off with her. It's not actually a female. So he tries to pick her up and fly off. The hammer orchid will actually bonk him on the head uh, in return for that and, and leave pollen on him. Instead of mating, the male wasp just hurls itself into the awaiting sticky pads, which deposit the pollen. Eventually, he gives up and flies off. The only way it works is for that wasp to get tricked again by another hammer orchid releasing wasp perfume. It goes through the same failed ritual again, this time depositing the pollen. There's a whole group uh, of orchids called the bulbophyllums. The kind of deception they're engaging in is um, mostly for females. Females are targeted by deceptive orchids by looking like a good place to lay eggs. These orchids have these hairy reddish flowers and smell a lot like rotting flesh. And if you're a carrion fly or a fungus gnat, you're going to be looking for um, something that looks like uh, a dead rotting carcass or uh, rotting wood. That rotting smell is so real that sometimes the flies will even deposit their eggs on the flowers. If this seems like overkill, it's not. Being super specific in what pollinators they attract actually reduces the risk that their pollen gets lost or dropped off at the wrong plant. That means a better chance of getting pollinated. You can look at the flowers and make pretty well-educated guesses about what it is trying to attract based on the way that flower looks. But some of them are so outlandish that, you know, there's clearly things about it that you can't unlock. They're just from outer space. As good as they are at hoodwinking bugs, Tom thinks that they may have found an even better mark. Humans. Orchids are masters of manipulation, and I'm convinced that this is their nefarious plan to enslave humanity into cultivating them and helping them through climate change and great strategy, right? To become the pet of the most successful creature on the planet. Deception can mean a lot of things, but to orchids, it means a better chance of getting pollinated, which translates to more plants for Tom and others like him to obsess over. So we've seen that some imposters want to hide in plain sight. But what if you don't want to hide something, but rather you want people to see something that's not really there? And in World War II, that meant employing soldiers that never truly existed at all. By early 1944, there were 150,000 soldiers in southern England, both Americans and Brits. They were preparing to invade Nazi-occupied Europe. The Germans knew the Allies would invade, but they couldn't tell when or where it would happen. Would they launch from Scotland and attack Nazi-held Norway? Would they land in Normandy? Or would they take the short and easy route, from Dover to Calais in northern France? Allied commanders realized the Germans would have to guess. So they figured, if you can't surprise the enemy, you may as well mess with their heads. And so began Operation Fortitude. The Allies created not one, but two fake armies. The big one was across from Calais, where the Nazis figured the invasion would probably come from. 
Brian Nicholas, an archivist at the National Air and Space Museum, says that spot in northern France worried Germans the most. Uh, because the Germans were convinced, well, at least uh, some of the Germans were convinced where the Allied forces would cross. They would cross at the narrowest point of the channel. So at the British side of that point, uh, they built a fake army, and the fake army was inflatable tanks and inflatable trucks. And a dummy airfield and a dummy landing craft. They sent out endless fake radio transmissions, giving movements and supply information. They would set up loudspeakers to make the sound, you know, play records of the sound of trucks and tanks being driven across the landscape. And if any recon caught it, they would report back. There's lots of enemy activity going on. They're massing for the invasion at this point. In reality, the forces are miles and miles away. That fictional army of rubber tanks and blasting speakers was headed by a very real general, George Patton. He was a legend for Americans and Germans, and Hitler respected his skills. So if Patton was involved, it had to be serious. Meanwhile, there was another fictional army posted up in Scotland. The British media helped out, broadcasting fake wedding announcements and football scores to non-existent troops. The Allies even found an impersonator, this boozy Australian actor who looked a bit like Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, the general in charge of the real invasion. There was one problem, though. The Aussie had lost a finger in World War I, but Montgomery still had all of his. So they fixed fake Monty up with a fake finger and made sure he got spotted just before D-Day somewhere far from Normandy. Even the night before the invasion. Allied forces made up these mannequins, these puppets, that looked like a, a paratrooper. And they had a, a parachute that was scaled to the size of the mannequin. These mannequins were a foot and a half, maybe two feet tall. So as the cargo planes carrying paratroopers in for D-Day passed by. Before they would get to their drop zone, they would pass over certain areas and let loose a bunch of these small mannequins, these puppets. And to an observer on the ground, a German soldier, it would look like these paratroopers were landing, you know, a mile away. Well, in reality, they're landing in the field next door. It's just the perspective in the moonlight is all off. And the cargo plane would fly on for another, you know, several miles before the paratroopers would actually jump out of the plane and take their objective. Imagine all these little soldier puppets just fluttering down in the night sky. It worked. That definitely worked, because a lot of the German commanders, uh, uh, supposedly even Hitler, said, no, no, they're not landing in Normandy. They're going to cross at Calais. You know, keep the emergency tank forces in Calais. This is, Normandy's just a diversion. In fact, Hitler kept his forces there for seven weeks. By the time they realized it was not a fake, it was too late. We'd already established a, a strong foothold. The U.S. Army went on to create a 1,100-man unit called the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. These guys carried out deceptions at over 20 battlefields and were kept classified for 40 years. The Army even created training movies on how to use sonic deception, which, by the way, is the source of those tank noises you heard earlier. Here, the Sonic Deception guys take you through how they created soundscapes of bridge construction. Every component part of the building operation is recorded on a separate disc. The next will be a bulldozer at work. Then men unloading trucks and so on, recording each separate step. 
actually got the story of another invasion for you, but this one doesn't have anything to do with battlefields. It's in Maryland's Chesapeake Bay right now, where scientists are trying to halt a zombie takeover. On a Sunday afternoon, Tony and I head to the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center on the Chesapeake Bay. We pull up to a group of docks. Here, volunteers with the Citizen Science Project are helping researchers pick through crab traps filled with oyster shells. They're on the lookout for zombie mud crabs, or at least mud crabs that have been taken over by a parasite. So we have this cute little mud crab. Um, it's about the size of your thumbnail, the white-fingered mud crabs. That's Carolyn Tepold, a fellow at the center. And they're actually really common, even though you've probably never seen one. Lots of things like to eat them. They're small, they're vulnerable, they're like, like little, you know, undersea popcorn, essentially. And so they hide a lot. Unfortunately, they can't hide from a parasite that scientists call loxo. That's actually a barnacle, although you would never know it to look at it that basically, when it's very young, when it's a larvae, swims around, finds a newly molted mud crab when it's nice and soft and vulnerable, and actually burrows into the mud crab, grows all throughout the inside of the crab. Scientists think Loxo came to Maryland in the 1950s as hitchhikers on healthy oysters imported from the Gulf of Mexico. Every summer, the research center plants traps throughout the Chesapeake to try to get a better sense of how far the infection has spread and how bad it is. For any individual crab, it's pretty bad. Loxo creeps its way through the circulatory system like the roots of a plant, hijacking the crab and turning them into parasite breeding factories. It's not making any more crabs. Now all its energy is essentially going to making baby parasites. That's both male and female crabs. The parasite neuters the crabs and actually changes the shape of a male crab to look more like female crabs. So now both bodies are better able to carry these sacks of baby parasites that'll grow out of their abdomen. So crabs that have been infected for a while, it's actually really hard for us to tell, even with a microscope, sometimes the male from the female crabs. And these naive little crabs don't realize they've been duped. And they'll kind of take care of the parasite sac the way that a female crab would take care of her eggs. So they kind of keep it clean and make sure it's aerated and keep it in good shape. And sometimes even if you pick up a parasitized crab, it'll put its little legs over its abdomen as if it's almost trying to protect the parasite. The parasites keep laying millions and millions of baby parasites in those sacs, which the crabs protect over and over until they die. It feels like a pretty bad deal for the poor crab. Today, about 15 volunteers and staff are sifting through oyster shells, poking through the grit and in the crevices, trying to shake out these tiny crabs. You pick all these crabs up just to look across the back of them. It just looks like this nice little community of crabs. But in an area that's really infected, you flip them over and you start to see more and more parasites. And those crabs, they're not dead. They're still there in the population, but they're, they're almost ghosts or zombies. They're not part of the gene pool anymore. They're not contributing to the next generation of crabs. They're effectively like parasites in crabs' clothing, walking around and reproducing for themselves. The center has been tracking infection rates for 15 years and it ebbs and flows. Some areas have higher infected populations and they see fewer babies. But they aren't worried about crabs dying out. Instead, researchers like Carolyn are trying to understand whether the crabs can evolve to fight the parasite. 
50 years isn't a lot of time, and so these parasites have evolved over potentially millennia to be really good at infecting mud crabs. Um, it's actually a, a concept called a co-evolutionary arms race, we think might be part of this. So like the crab adapts to resist the parasite, the parasite adapts to infect the crab, the crab adapts to resist the better parasite, the parasite adapts to infect the better crab. Uh, better just being, you know, more infectable at this point. To test this, Carolyn has taken data from various sites across the East Coast. She's found that in Florida, where the parasite is native, only about 1% of crabs are castrated. Well, here in Maryland, up to 80% of crabs can be affected. It's all pointing to there maybe being some evolution of resistance so that maybe part of the reason that those crabs in the native range aren't being hit very hard is because they've evolved a relationship with the parasites so potentially evolved to resist parasitization, whereas our crabs here are pretty naive. Now she's looking for evidence in the genome those individual genes in the crab's DNA that affect something specific to prove just that. But one of the cool things with evolution is, you know, evolution is changes in your DNA over time. And we can actually sometimes, if you have a really strong pressure for something to evolve, sometimes you can see little signatures of selection in the genome. Uh, you can see changes in the genome that kind of pop out at you and suggest that, hey, maybe this gene has been under evolution. It seems to be changing a little faster than everything around it. Mud crabs are a major food source for lots of fish. So losing mud crabs means a big loss for the overall ecosystem. And the parasites that infect these mud crabs are similar to the ones that kill bigger crabs, like the ones that humans eat. So learning how the parasite evolves could be an important step towards keeping our food supply safe. And if I've learned anything from sci-fi movies, it's that scientific discovery is a great tool for fighting alien invasions. Thanks for listening to Sidedoor, a podcast from the Smithsonian. If you'd like to learn more about orchid tricks, dig deeper into the history of warplanes, or volunteer for a citizen science project like the people working on zombie mud crabs, you can find links and resources at si.edu slash sidedoor. Sidedoor is produced by Megan Dietry and me, Tony Cohn. Production support by Kat Roman. Editing support by Max Rosenthal. Jason Orfanon is the executive producer. Megan Dietry is the series producer. Special thanks to Nico Picaro, Barbara Reem, Gabe Kozowitz, and Jess Sadek. If you want to hear more stories like these, subscribe on iTunes. Next time on Transistor, another Side Door episode. This one will explore panda conservation at the National Zoo. Your Transistor team is me, I'm Genevieve Sponsler, PRX Chief Content Officer John Barth and Josh Swartz, who mixes these episodes for Transistor. Transistor is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. This is PRX.